Good morning, College Park. Please turn with me in your Bible to Romans 1. We'll be reading verses 24 to 32 this morning. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how we need understanding of what Romans 1 says. And so we pray that you would give us understanding and insight from your word. Pray that you would help me to make it clear and plain and that the compelling argument of this passage would woo us to your mercy and warn us of the pathway of self-destruction. Oh, how we need your help today. So we ask for you, Holy Spirit, to open our eyes to what we need to see, that you'd open our ears to what we need to hear, and that you'd open my mouth so that I could say exactly what you want to be said today from this text for the help and benefit of your people. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There are some Sundays when you might hear the scripture reading and wonder how relevant a particular passage is to where you live. If you uh, read through the Bible in the year, for instance, you might run across the book of Leviticus. And while you're sure it's the word of God and you know it's inspired and you're sure that it's helpful in some way, let's be honest, there are some days when you do a little bit of flyover reading Because it just doesn't seem like it connects that well to where you really live. Well, our text today is anything but irrelevant. What we're going to talk about today is important, it's applicable, and candidly, it's controversial. We're going to see how the book of Romans addresses the fallen condition of mankind. And then, how that condition expresses itself in... Multiple areas, including sexuality and specifically homosexuality. This is one of the most important passages in the Bible as it relates to the world in which we live, the culture that we all live in, and the morality that's expressed within the Scriptures. So if you were here last week, you knew that this text was coming, and my guess is you came today with a bit of anticipation. 
That's good. I'm glad you've come ready to hear and to listen. If you're new today, you need to know that we're making our way through the book of Romans, and today just happens to be the next text in our journey through this book. So this is not a one-off or a soapbox sermon. Rather, it's just part of our journey through this book. However, there's also a number of you who I know that as we approach this text that you feel a bit nervous. Nervous because there are people in your sphere of influence, friends, relatives, who this particular message and this particular subject is especially important because you do life with people who would define themselves as homosexuals. Or maybe you're here today and you struggle with the issue of same-sex attraction and you're trying to figure out how do I deal with this and what is my place in the church? And, And my guess is there's also some of you who based upon what you see in the culture and even sort of your own thought processes, you're wrestling with, is, is it really wrong for two people of the same sex to be attracted to each other and to love one another? So all of that to say what we're dealing with today is incredibly important and very relevant. Here's what I hope to do. I want to do my best to carefully and lovingly walk you through what Romans chapter 1 says about our humanity, about our brokenness, and about our sexuality. And I want to try and show you how the gospel is ultimately the solution to everything in life, including our most intimate desires and our most intimate actions. So today our text is loaded. And let me just lay that out from the outset. And because of that, can I ask you to do a favor for me? Um, Typically on a Sunday morning, I welcome you to respond by clapping or a hearty amen or something that would, would be fitting in the text. But sometimes when we do that, people might not know exactly why you're doing it. And today, that could be really questioned for a lot of reasons. So if you could do me a favor, I I would love it just if we could not do an amen and not even clap and just sit in respectful love for one another as we just contemplate what it is that God's word says, because anything that we would do overtly could be really misinterpreted. So can we do that together? This is when you can say yes. Okay, so here it is, right? So, So can we do that together? Okay, thank you. I would really appreciate that. Now be quiet, all right? Just kidding. By way of review, last week we looked at the book of Romans and we saw the dark backdrop against which the gospel sits. Eric made a great point of that in our worship set already. Paul's theme from chapter 1 and verse 18 all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20 is about our brokenness, it's about our depravity. And you might wonder, why do we need this much material? Here's why. Because there's nobody in this room who would dare claim to be perfect. If I said to you, how many are imperfect? We'd all raise our hands. Our problem is not that we do not understand our imperfection. The problem is, is we don't embrace the desperation of our imperfection. It is that we don't understand the full extent of how much we need God's help. And so what Paul does in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, is he overwhelms us with our condition in the hope that we would come to an end of ourselves and realize, I need help from Christ in the very depth of my being. So Romans chapter 1 through chapter 3 is a setup for the gospel. Last week we saw... 
that his beginning analysis of our problem or our condition, our condition as he diagnoses it is that we have experienced the wrath of God. It's being revealed even now in the futility of the world. We are suppressing the truth actively by our unrighteousness. We deny God, even though it's inexcusable. We self-worship and we self-destruct. And we ended last week with this phrase, God gave them up. And today what I want to do is unpack that even further and show you three ways in which God gives us up. I want to connect this idea that unbelief has consequences and unpack that even further. So what we want to begin to talk about is this idea of a tragic or the tragic exchange. And in order to understand Romans chapter 1, you have to understand this key issue because this text is understood when you get this divine exchange or this tragic exchange in its right place. You need to resist the urge to see verses 24 to 32 as judgmental, hopeless, or unkind. Rather, these verses are meant to show us the exchange that takes place that results in the fallen condition of humanity that is eventually solved by the gospel. So, there are two places where we see the problem of the exchange. Look at verses 22 and 23. And then verse 25, first in verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, there it is, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So there's the first place we see this idea of exchanged. And then also in verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So the key word is that word exchanged and the problem Connected in that word is the way in which mankind devalues the glory of God, beholds the glory of God and says, yeah, that's not as important or as valuable or as worthy of my affection as the glory of creation, specifically the glory of myself. If you boil the problem underneath the problem of our behavior, of our affections, of our desires, it is this problem of exchange that we ascribe to ourselves affection, worship, or obedience that really belongs to God. It is, in effect, the exchange of God's glory for our glory. Now, lest you make the mistake of thinking it's just about spirituality or some sort of esoteric reality, Paul links this tragic exchange, not just with worship and idolatry, but actually with physical actions. In other words, he links the idea of worship and this tragic worship exchange with how we really live. If you look at verse 23, you'll see that the tragic exchange results in the creation of images. That the exchange results in something that people do. Verse 25, it connects idolatry to actual service. They exchange the truth for God or about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So what Paul is doing is making the distinction here between worship and affection and actions and work. Those go together. Human beings were made to worship. Everyone worships someone or something. And our worship expresses itself in terms of what we actually do. 
So Romans 1 diagnoses our condition and is this, that we as human beings are worshipers who have tragically exchanged the glory of God for the glory of creation. This exchange is the root of all sin. It's the essence of our rebellion against God. That we are relentless worshipers of ourselves. When you watch the Super Bowl this evening, just look at it through that lens. We are worshipers of ourselves. I'm reading for my sabbatical preparatory material on the English Reformation, and I'm getting into kings and royalty, and it's just, I find myself thinking, why? Why this fascination with kings and monarchs and royalty? And I thought, well, we do the same thing. Except they play in a football field, they show up in Forbes magazine, or they're in the crazy magazines you walk through the checkout aisle. We, We set up heroes. And sometimes I wonder, why in the world do we do this? Is anyone else tired of hearing about Justin Bieber? <laughs> Why do we do this to ourselves? Right? We, we set these people up and we watch their lives. You know why we do it? Because the problem under the problem is we are fascinated with ourselves. We're fascinated with other human beings. We are, we are fascinated with the reality of what it means to be human. And the Bible says that this exchange of God's glory for our own is the problem underneath the problem. Now, you have to understand this in order to unlock what comes next in the text. There are three effects of this exchange that Paul identifies, and they are linked to the phrase, gave them up. That phrase, gave them up, shows up in verse 24, it shows up in verse 26, and it shows up in verse 28. Let me show them to you. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. So you see three evidences, three examples of God giving them up. And what this is, is the way in which God allows the full effects of our humanity to express itself in what we do, in what we desire, and in what we think. And these things all overlap. You can't take them as just three siloed sort of areas. They, they overlap. What we do affects what we desire, affects what we think. And so all these are connected, and all of it's related to this problem under the problem, which is the exchange of God's glory for our own. So I want to unpack these three effects. We're going to look at the first one, then the third one, and then back to the second one. And the reason is, is that the first one is the most general, the third one is the most widespread, and the second one is the most controversial. So we're going to look at them first, third, and second. First, the Bible says that God gives us up to lusts, leading then to impurity. Again, let's look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Notice that in verse 24, that it's bracketed by the words exchanged. In verse 23, it's there. And exchanged the glory of God. In verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God. You see that? So the exchange in verse 23 and the exchange in verse 25 points to what's going on in verse 24. And that is that God has given them up. So the exchange of God, of His glory for our own, results in lusts leading to impurity. 
That little phrase, God gave them up, that's linked back to verse 18, where the wrath of God is revealed. This is how the wrath of God is being poured out even now. God giving us what our desires lead us to is, in fact, His judgment. Now, there's another judgment that is coming. But the judgment that already is, is the fact that God gives us up to our wrong desires. So, is God going to judge our nation because of its immorality? Certainly. But here's the deal. Immorality is the judgment of God. We need to get that into our minds and hearts. It isn't just that judgment is coming, and it very well may be in new forms, but the fact of the matter is immorality is the judgment, and the Bible says that God gives us up to these things. Now, how is this expressed? It's expressed, according to verse 24, in that God gives us up to our lusts of our hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So this word impurity, very important word in the New Testament, it is a word that Paul uses in other places as a blanket term for sexual sin. In other words, there is a direct connection between God's judgment and all kinds, all kinds of sexual impurity. Now that's really important for you to see at the outset that all sexual sin is an effect of the exchange of God's glory for our own. So at the end, when I talk about homosexuality, you need to realize that homosexuality is one sin set in a wide array of sins, all of which express the exchange of the glory of God for another. So I'm just talking about one sin. We're talking about all sin here. All sin. So I'm just picking on the issue of homosexuality. This relates to the entire brokenness of what mankind is involved in. So before we get into that specific controversial area, you need to see that first, Paul is saying that the exchange of God for ourselves has real and physical and sexual consequences. And secondly, that every aspect of sexual impurity is part of what it means for God to have given us up. Imagine with me what our world would be like if impurity, particularly sexual impurity, was not a part of the fabric of our culture. I mean, our our world is just filled with impurity at so many levels. So imagine what it would be like if sexual impurity was solved. Imagine marriages that were never violated or broken. Purity that was always protected as a gift before marriage. Nakedness that was never displayed. Children who could always feel safe. Fathers who never had to worry about the safety of their daughters. Relationships that were always healthy and respectful and appropriate. Unplanned pregnancies that never happened. And certain diseases that were totally eradicated. That sounds like a dream world, doesn't it? You know why? Because it is a dream world that is not the world in which we live because impurity is a part of the fabric of the human experience. And friends, it is part of the pouring out of the judgment of God. It isn't that judgment is coming. It is that impurity is part of that very judgment. It's hard to overestimate the destruction on our culture, our society, our families, recent studies even, our brains and on our souls that sexual impurity has caused. But what you need to know is for as bad as impurity is, that's 
not the ultimate problem. It's a problem? Absolutely. But it's not the ultimate problem. The problem under that problem is the exchange of God's glory for our own. Underneath the problem of sexual sin is a worship problem. So you need to know that if you're struggling and fighting and and guilty of all sorts of sexual impurities, your issue is not sex. It is worship. It is that you have an object in your heart and it's you and you use impurity to get what you want. That's how Paul diagnoses the problem. And that is so helpful to see it that way because there's hope there. So the first thing is that God gives us to lusts leading to impurity. Here's the third thing. We'll come back to number two. Effect number three is we are given over to a depraved mind leading to all manner of unrighteousness. In verses 28 to 32, Paul unpacks the effects on the mind and then connects the depraved mind to depraved living with a laundry list, 21 sins that he identifies. And what he does here is show us the connection between a depraved mind and widespread consequences in terms of our behavior. Verses 29 to 31, actually let's look at 28 first. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So he gave them up to a debased mind, and then the result is actions that follow their wrong thinking. And then he lists three groupings of sins. The first are four general sins. That's found in verse 29. All manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. So that's a a, a general vice list. And then five sins of which we have drunk fully of in verses, latter part of verse 29. Envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. The kinds of things that are just embedded in our human experience. And then he lists 12 societal ills in verses 29 through 31. Things like gossip and slander and hating God and insolent and being haughty and boastful. An inventor of evil, disobedient to your parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And what Paul intends to do is to make this list of 29 sins to be absolutely overwhelming. One after another, we are pummeled with the reality of the brokenness of our world. That we hear it, we see it, and we realize, oh my, our world is lost. Paul wants us to see this. Paul felt this. His culture was not that dissimilar from our own. Sin was rampant. And yet the problem is, and the reason why Paul wrote Romans 1, is it's easy to get so inoculated by the sinfulness of our culture to think that because it's so familiar and so common that it is normal and right as opposed to normal and wrong. And what Paul is saying here is that there's a tragic exchange that happens. We exchange God's glory for our own and that expresses itself in the things that we do. But yet it gets even worse. Look at verse 32. For though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So the idea here is that we not only do these things, but our depravity affects us to such an extent that we actually cheer one another on in our sinfulness. Our minds are so deluded by our own self-deception that we not only do what we know we shouldn't do, but we also invite other people to do it along with us. Some of you can think back of Days of maybe college or high school in particular, you got introduced to things, and part of the reason you got introduced was because somebody was cheering you on and inviting you. 
Maybe that was even part of your experience in your past. And you look back and go, what was I thinking? You not only did what you know you shouldn't be doing, but you actually were cheering others on as they did it along with you. And there's something about the human condition that is just so deeply flawed that we not only do what's wrong, but we feel better when other people are doing it with us. If there's a sense that I can't be wrong if this many other people are going along with me. And so the societal mob mentality begins to take over and pretty soon we get, begin to justify what we know is wrong, but with so many people doing it like me, certainly this, this can't be wrong. That's part of how we see life. Our depraved mind not only justifies what we know to be wrong, but we also encourage others to join in us in all manner of unrighteousness. So the first effect was God gives us up to lust, leading to impurities. The third one is that he gives us up to a depraved mind, leading to all manner of unrighteousness. So that would explain, if you use Romans 1, why if you talk to somebody who doesn't share this worldview, and they have an argument for why they do what they do, and it just seems like we don't even live on the same planet, the reality is your worldviews couldn't be any more different. And you're going to see that very clearly. And I hope that Romans 1 will help you to see that distinction. And then you will not get mad. But instead you will be grieved. And you will pray. And you'll lean in with godly clarity and weeping eyes. And plead with people to try and see the problem under the problem. Second effect, third point is that God gives us up to dishonorable passions leading to homosexuality. We now return to verses 26 and 27, the most controversial part of the text. And I hope now you can see how Paul has set this in context, that homosexuality is presented here as one example among many of the overall disordering and brokenness of our world. It was just as controversial when Paul wrote this in the first century as it is for me to talk about this today in the 21st century. Homosexuality was a well-known and accepted part of Roman culture. It's estimated by historians that likely 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors practiced some aspects of homosexual activity. And yet Paul goes after this issue. I'll show you why. Verse 26, he says that God has given them up to dishonorable passions. Now that little phrase, dishonorable passions, is important because of its connection to verse 24. Let your eyes go back up to verse 24 and notice that it says, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. So we have impurity, dishonoring bodies. We have now dishonorable passions. Where does all of this come from? It actually comes from verse 21 where it says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. So see the connection. A lack of honoring God results in a dishonoring of one's body and the manifestation of dishonorable passions. What Paul is doing here is linking, if you leave God, then you get the net result. If you fail to honor him as God, it results in the dishonoring of your body and as well the dishonoring of passions. Or to state it simply, that God... He gives us up to desires that are not a part of his design. So he gives us up to desires that are not a part of his design. Then Paul could have just left it right there, but instead he makes it explicitly clear. He clarifies what he he means by dishonorable passions by applying it to men and women in terms of their sexual relations. 
Look at verse 26. God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now you need to know there is a a, a movement to try and reinterpret this passage to say when Paul is identifying against nature or contrary to nature, what he means there is that he's defining people who are by their nature homosexual and they act heterosexual, that's the sin, when you act against your nature. Or if you're heterosexual and you act homosexual, that's the problem, that the issue is acting against the very nature of who you are. The problem is that it's not what the text says. And very clearly, a very simple reading of the passage doesn't bear that out. Paul makes his point incredibly clear. The problem isn't between people who are going contrary to what their natural desires are, but rather men who are leaving the natural use for women and pursuing men, and women leaving the natural use for men and pursuing women. That's clear in the passage. The dishonoring passions here are those that are contrary to nature or contrary to God's design. In other words... God's design, God's plan, was for sexuality to be expressed in a covenantal relationship between a man and a woman. That's the way God designed it. The way he designed it in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. The way he designed them physiologically. That's, that is God's design. In fact, as a part of that design, he brought them together, gave them to each other, and then commanded them to fill the earth. So notice, in the very beginning, the Garden of Eden, we have God's design, and we also have a command. And that command sounds like this. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So what you need to understand is central to God's design is both the design of male and female sexuality, and that in that sexuality, they create And what do they create? They create other image bearers. They create children that in the miracle of birth, they do in their world what God does in his. The very first command to Adam and Eve is directly linked to their sexuality, to their physiology, and to their desire. Get this. God loves the creation of image bearers so much. He loves the image of himself expressed in male and femaleness in sexual union that he links the creation of children to the most significant driving passion in humanity. Sexual passion. God takes that beautiful gift uses it to say something powerful about himself. And in the context of covenant, it becomes a sacrament drawing husband and wife together and saying something powerful about God. So when Paul says that it's against nature, he's saying that homosexuality in its very essence violates God's design and violates the first of God's commands. Consider, for instance, what would happen if we just completely abandoned heterosexuality, completely set it aside, and everyone moved to homosexuality. What would happen in that context? The result would be the human race within one generation would be extinct. So you see, central to God's design is male and female and the power and the ability to create. And what homosexuality does is it reorients both the affections that God has designed for men 
for women and women for men, and it also disobeys the very command that out of this sexuality comes the hope, the beauty, the power of God working through us to create image bearers. There's also something about redemption here. There's something about sexuality that is also reflected in God's heart for the church. In the book of Ephesians, Paul links the image of a marriage between a man and a woman to God's care for the church. He says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, shall hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, this mystery is profound. What mystery? It's the mystery between a husband and a wife and their beautiful union. And I'm saying that refers to Christ and the church. What you have to understand is the violation of God's design not only does violence to his created order, but it also does violence to the image that he has embedded in sexuality as it relates to God's redemptive plan in the church. In other words, sexuality was meant to be a sacred dramatization of God's covenant love for the church and designed to be a sacred dramatization of God's power in creation. So why does he list homosexuality specifically? Why does he go there? Here's why. He doesn't go there because homosexuality is a worse sin. It's not why. Clearly in the context, there's all sorts of other things that are just as bad and, 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 and just as sinful. But why does he go here? He goes here because of the problem under the problem. Remember the problem under the problem is the exchange, the exchange of God's glory for our own. It's the exchange of the image of God for an image of myself. The reason Paul goes here is he uses homosexuality as the most vivid and intimate and powerful example of the extent of this tragic exchange, of the exchange of God's glory for myself. Homosexuality, therefore, exchanges God's design for an image like me. So the disordering of culture is clear when men and women give up their God-given design and they exchange it for desires for one like myself. Homosexuality is listed here because it shows the depth of our personal brokenness. It shows us that the extent of this tragic exchange goes so deep and so into the fabric of our humanity that we would alter something as personal and as intimate as sexual desire. That is how deep... Our fallenness goes. That's why. It is the most vivid illustration of the exchange of God's glory for what we want and what we desire. And that is why this subject is so hard and why it's so volatile, because sexuality is deeply personal. God designed it to be that way. He designed this one flesh relationship to be a, a sacrament of sorts that continually binds a man and a woman together where they affirm God's covenantal design and out of their union do what he does in his world, you do in yours. Sexuality was always powerful. It was meant to be powerful. And that's why talking about homosexuality is challenging because sexuality is so powerful that it feels like it defines who you are. And that's what you'll run into what you are running into someone who says if you don't accept this about me you don't accept me and here's the mistake that's made in that that we have elevated sexuality to the place of personhood but a biblical framework your sexuality is not 
fundamentally who you are. That who you are is so much bigger and grander and glorious than just your sexuality or your sexual orientation. Our culture has elevated sexuality to the level of identity. And the hope of Romans chapter 1 is, no, 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 there is something much bigger, much more glorious, something more foundational. There is an issue below that issue. There's a problem below that problem or this. There is a hope that is so much more fundamental to who you are than your sexuality or your desires. So why does Paul use homosexuality as a vivid illustration? He does so because it is the clearest example of the exchange of God's glory for our own. And secondly, it demonstrates the depth of how far this brokenness goes. That the fallen condition of mankind goes all the way to our most intimate desires. And the effect, verse 27 is that God continues to hand us over. It says that they received in themselves the due penalty for their error. I think what that means is what the rest of the text says, that God hands them over to this, and they face the ongoing effects, culturally, personally, of what it means to be given over to this. So homosexuality, impurity, and all manner of unrighteousness, these are what happens when we exchange God's glory for our own. This is what happens when we say, this is what you say life should be like, but I don't think so. I think life should be like this. And you tell me to be like this, but I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to be like that. And that is the essence of, that's the problem under the problem. And by the way, this is why the gospel is so helpful and beautiful, is that the gospel goes all the way to the very root of this issue and to the power of Jesus and the authority of the word and the indwelling of the spirit, it changes us from the inside out. So what are the implications of this? Having walked you through Romans 1, let me give you a few personal and pastoral conclusions. First, I hope you see that Romans helps us to interpret ourselves and our humanity. By reading Romans 1 carefully, studying it, looking at it, seeing what it says, it sheds light on the problem, under the problem in our culture. It shows us the real problem for all of us, regardless of our actions, where on the list we are, our past and the mistakes that we've made, or even our orientations Addressing the issue of the exchange of God's glory for our own is the most important issue. And so if you have somebody in your life who's wrestling with varying levels of impurity or specifically with homosexuality, how do you pray for them? You pray about the problem under the problem. You you ask the Lord by His Spirit to help them to see the exchange of God for their own desires. And you do whatever you can to try and help them see that problem underneath the problem. Romans helps us to interpret ourselves and our humanity. Secondly, all of us have an orientation towards certain aspects of this tragic exchange. The brokenness of our world has gotten way, way down deep into us, and it's historical and it's generational. 
the list of the effects of sin that we covered were 21 items long. And so I'm sure that there, that all of us have dispositions to certain sins on this list. I'm sure that there are many who have dispositions toward anger. And you can go back in your family history and trace that out. Or you have people in your family who have a disposition towards gluttony or laziness. People who have a disposition towards lust. Disposition towards addictive behavior and alcohol and drug abuse. And I'm sure as well a disposition towards a same-sex attraction. In some cases, those orientations come about because of someone's experience in their past. In other cases, it comes out just because of the fabric of who they are. So the genetic issue or the orientation issue doesn't debunk Romans chapter 1 at all. In fact, Romans chapter 1 explains that. Absolutely, all of us are fundamentally flawed in the core of our very being. And yet at the same time, those orientations don't excuse our behaviors and nor do they define who we are. Romans 1 helps us to understand those struggles and to see them for what they are. Third, the story of the tragic exchange is in the Bible so that the gospel can be clear. So the story of the tragic exchange is in the Bible so the gospel can be clear. So Paul diagnoses this problem with our humanity so that we will see our desperate need for God to rescue us from ourselves. Because what do you do about your orientation and your desires? What do you do about the things that you want to do that you know you're not supposed to do? How do you fundamentally change that when you think that's who you really are? Answer, you need somebody to come and rescue you from you. And that is what the gospel does. That at the core of who and what we are, Jesus comes and changes us from the inside out, empowers us with a new spirit, a power that you've never had, forgives you in a way you could have never been able to reconcile on your own and makes you a new person from the very core of your being it is a miracle and this is what the bible tells us happens in the gospel that when people come to an end of themselves jesus can rescue them so romans 1 as bleak and as dark as it is makes the gospel incredibly attractive fourth my vision Our elders' vision, our pastor's vision for our church is that we would be a place that reflects the heart of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 10 to 11. And after he identified a list of sins that keep people out of the kingdom of heaven, and and make no mistake about it, this is what is on the line. Paul's very clear about that. He lists things like the sexually immoral idolaters, adulterers, the issue of homosexuality. He lists thieves, those who are greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. And he says, this is a problem. And then he says this about the church. And such were some of you. That is a beautiful statement. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. And what we long and want is for College Park Church to be a church filled with people who are wrestling and fighting and struggling with every variant form of weakness and depravity and that this would be a church marked by those kind of people. But their confession is, that's who I used to be and now I'm clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And that you can clap to. Amen. 
I want to be the kind of church where we help people to fight with all the issues in Romans chapter 1. All of them. Listen to me. Including the issue of same-sex attraction. And if that fits your fight, if the same-sex attraction piece fits your fight, I am sure, I am sure, sure, sure that you have not always felt like church was a safe place to be honest and to get help. And I want you to know that our church wants to extend love and grace and help to you because every person in this church is broken and we all battle the same issue. And that issue is the willful exchange of God's glory for our own. And that takes on different manifestations and different expressions and different activities. But the fact of the matter is the problem under the problem is the same problem. Romans 1 is in the Bible not just because of a long list of sins and not just to identify the sin of homosexual activity. It is in the Bible because it helps us see our need for the gospel. It gives us a vision of what it means to have God's glory at the center of our life and to say, I want that glory and everything that comes with it because at the end of the day, the problem of my life, the problem in your life, the problem in all of our lives is we have fallen. Oh, how we have fallen. And Romans 1 shows us the extent of that fall in order to show us how to find help in the gospel. It's meant to show us the extent of our depravity so we can be awakened to receive the beauty of God's glory in the person of Jesus. That's why this text is here. And oh, I hope that's what you believe. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, how we need your help today in so many levels. We need your grace to cover our sins from the past, and they are many and varied. We need your grace to know how to love one another in the midst of hard battles and things that we don't even understand. And And we also need your grace to know how to speak into this in our world and culture in a way that is winsome, yet clear, compelling, and yet compassionate. So I pray today for the ability on our part, you helping us, to apply this word. I pray for people who are battling through every level of impurity, and I pray that they would fight fight and fight in the authority and the power in the name of Jesus. I pray that today might be a day where somebody recognizes their powerlessness to defeat any sin and today might be done with themselves and come to faith in Christ. I pray for moms and dads and siblings and friends who grieve over the choices of people they love. They don't know what to do. And I pray you give them wisdom and tact and clarity to love in Jesus' name but also to speak to the problem under the problem. God, help us to value your glory above all other things. Help us. Help us to see, to savor the beauty of this gospel that can change us so deeply, so fundamentally, that we'd never be the same again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And maybe some of you... 
We need to pray with someone after the service about something going on in your life, an extended family member or something. There'll be folks up here who'd love to care for you and pray for you today, okay? I love you, College Park. Thanks for coming. God bless you.